0: Okay everyone, welcome back to another, I think this is episode 20 I guess now, something like that of uh, the Sporting Blog podcast. Um, We've got some really, really cool guests lined up um, and today we're starting with um, probably my favourite one of the lot. Um, Today's cast is really going to be focusing on about the mental side of sport at the elite level and what it takes to not just to get there, but to stay there and to stay there for a long time. Um, So I'm really pleased to be joined by Rob Fay, current world champion of uh, real tennis. And look, just for the listeners, we're not going to go too much into what real tennis is and all that shit today, because uh, we've done a podcast on that. There's a million articles on that. We'll touch on some of the aspects of the game that make it a little different to others. But uh, Rob, welcome. How's it going?
1: It's going very well, thanks, Uh, Jabba. Lovely to be here.
0: Yeah, and so you and I have known each other for a while just because uh, you know I, I play this game, Real Tennis, as an amateur and uh, the sister sport, Rackets. Um, but I suppose we better do this for the millions of listeners out there that, um, that don't know much about the game or yourself. Can, can you just do the, the elevator intro into how you got into Real Tennis and um, where it's taken you up to now?
1: Yeah, a real tennis. It's, it's in a lot of ways a difficult thing to get into, um, purely, you know, geographically mostly, because there are only 50 courts in the world, and there happens to be one in my uh, hometown of Hobart in Australia. And uh, so, right at the kind of time where I was uh, heading off to university, I just decided that um, some part-time work would be handy, uh, just to kind of you know, make trips to the uh, the uni bar a bit more fun. And right at that period, the Hobart Real Tennis Club um, advertised for a position to come and help become a professional uh, on a part-time basis, and pretty much all the job ad said was um, good racket skills required. And at that time, I was the number one tennis player in the state. So I figured, well, I think I, I checked that one box, uh, went along. 16 of us applied for the job, and a couple of interviews later, um, I got the job, and the kind of rest is history.
0: So, just for reference, um, that was back uh, in what year? I'm just trying to look at your. You, you've, I'm trying to look through the. Just so the listeners' know, I've got on one one screen. I've got kind of Rob's career achievements, and there's a lot of scrolling you have to do to <laughs> to get back to where to where it all started. So it was 1987. Yeah. So 87. Yeah. Uh, Spurs lost a really bad cup final that year that that year is etched in my memory um, so from you know essentially being an assistant pro uh, so let's just actually just briefly um, because we're going to get on to all the cool stuff but what was it like picking up a brand new sport because you know I remember starting these games and for me as I I guess I was about 20-ish um, starting these games one of the fun bits was it was brand new because I played every other sport to death right and I didn't have well, we're going to talk about the determination or the dedication to move on in those games. So for me, it was really interesting discovering a new sport. What, how did you find starting something brand new?
1: Yeah, I mean, a similar reaction, I guess. I think, you know, the first time you walk onto a real tennis court, you're kind of struck by, like, how insane it looks. Yeah. And, and, you know, once you start striking the ball and, you, you know, the feeling of that hard ball on a tightly strung racket, it's, it's quite unique almost, and yeah, like you, I just thought like, you know, I'm without really realizing it, but I thought, well, I'm, I'm totally ready for a new challenge here. Like this, this is just great fun. And I think it was helped by, um, you know, the people were just so welcoming and, and there was a lot of fun to be had around the club. And it just, you know, it was a great kind of blend of what a, what a brilliant new game to try mixed in with like, what, a, what an amazing fun place to be.
0: Yeah. And it's worth pointing out to those listening who don't play these games. I say games, I keep, I'll mention the two because rackets and real tennis are so closely linked, but there is a very active social scene around the, uh, around the sports, which um, is why there's a lot of social participants uh, in the game. So yeah, look, I just said the same thing when I first started playing. Um, I realized there was a lot more to the games than just being able to hit a ball and then going home. It was, you know, it was actually not the done thing to go straight home after playing but so um just to put things into a bit of context so you started out there you were heading off to uni all the rest of that stuff did you how long did it maybe take you to think there might be a, a job a career in this or did that kind of happen eventually
1: yeah i mean i think it was probably a little bit later i didn't I, I guess I never really looked at the career side of it, but I was enjoying the sport side of it so much. And I was quite lucky in that uh, the Hobart Club hosted the world, uh, sorry, the uh, the Australian Open um, after probably about six months after I started. And so, you know, even though at the time I, you know, I could hit a ball pretty well, but I had no idea what I was doing. So it was just it was really good timing to see the best players in the world and to sit there and watch. And, and I just kind of thought, first of all, like they're way better than I thought they were going to be, (laughs) (laughs) but, but that only kind of spurred me on to be like, well, you know, I think I can do a lot of this stuff and, and I, I could definitely see myself beating these guys, you know, question of when and and with, with any sport that it's always harder than you think to get to where you want to be.
0: Yeah, and you and I have actually spoken about this before, probably in a social occasion about the the extraordinary awareness of of levels in sport. You know, you, you can be a good county player of squash or tennis, and then there's this other level that you think, "Wow, these guys are so good." And of course, there's 15 more levels above that that are just stratospherically good. So when you're starting out a game, and especially a game like real tennis, uh, you don't you don't realise until you see. Well, I, and because the game isn't really televised or whatever, you don't really see the, the level until you're courtside and you see what people are capable of, especially when it comes to things like retrieving and target play and the kind of unerring accuracy. So we fast forward along um, just a little bit, looking at your your first like if you like major successes around the early '90s, so '93. You picked up a bunch of Opens, uh, U.S. Open, French Open, and the Australian Open all in one year. At this stage, and you know, this we'll get into the stuff. At this stage, what was your your desire level for this sport? Because obviously, you said when you first started playing, you've seen some of the the, the good guys, realised how good they are. You probably got to put in a bit of work to to get near that level. What what was your what was your like mental ceiling at this point? Was this like I want to be world champion? I want to be best player or was it just like, you know, I'm enjoying the ride and it's good good fun being on tour.
1: I mean, there's a, there's a little combination of some of those things, but, uh, but the overriding, um, point was that I was doing everything that my life would allow to be the best. And so I was moving from country to country, um, to find the courts where I'd have best access to the court. Um, to somebody to practice with you know and so it kind of sounds like a lot of sacrifices but you know like it always it always kind of panned out that there was you know good good bit of fun to be had around that Of course, but ultimately you know it was it was get to somewhere where I could practice as much as I wanted with somebody that was worth practicing with and just do more than anybody else was doing pretty much
0: so when when did you uh leave hobart then for your if you like your first kind of I'm moving to go and uh, hit hit with better players
1: uh so I kind of the club put together some money after probably 18 20 months to send me over to some kind of junior tournaments in the UK and so I came over and um you know I lost lost in those tournaments to you know someone who was just genuinely better than me Um, but it was that kind of first visit here where I was like, okay, I'm pretty much going to head back home and figure out a way how to get back here. And so I guess my first kind of permanent move would have been, I don't remember these dates exactly, but I'm, I'm thinking that's late 89, early 90.
0: Right. I mean, it's quite a, it's quite a big thing for anyone. I mean, not least the, the sheer amount of distance between Australia and the UK. Um, let alone then beyond. Um, when you first came to the UK, you must have been pretty dead set at that point that this was going to be the path to follow. Um, were there anyone else doing the same things you mentioned, then like doing more than anyone else? Was there anyone else doing similar stuff or was kind of, you know, London, UK, the, the epicentre and everyone was here? Uh,
1: well, I didn't move to London as it turned out, but yeah, there were a lot of people doing it because I I think... You know, some of the reason behind some of the early success was that the the really top players were kind of getting towards the end a little bit kind of Federer and Nadali now where people think, you know, maybe they've got, you know, two, three, four good years left, but it was definitely that they were at that level. And so just, just by virtue of being a much younger, you know, more aggressive kind of, person and player you were going to get them at some point just through through nature um and so everybody around my vintage was was working really hard towards you know taking that that next level over and so there was a good group of us and that and of course that only helps you know the more of you in that group the better you all get you know and probably the quicker you'll you'll get better as well
0: yeah and um it's interesting that because, I, you know, we can reel off a whole bunch of names, uh, which some people will or won't be familiar with. But uh, I remember when I first started watching you and, and others of, of your level playing, what I found interesting was, was that practice dynamic that I'd never really seen in lawn tennis before. Like a good level lawn tennis, yeah, you hit with other people because you have to. But there wasn't that kind of, uh, it's not really camaraderie but there wasn't really that training to figure things out, you know, like in, in, in real tennis, I've seen, you know, you and others hitting return after return after return to the back corner. So someone can work on their retrieving there and, you know, real specific things that I guess you end up helping each other out with. Now I'm sure in the build up to a big match, you're not doing it with your opponent, but that kind of, the sort of day to day stuff I found interesting. What, do you think that you were? I mean, let's talk about this stuff. Do you think when it came, especially at that time, you know, early on, as you say, there's a good fun element to, to being out and about on the tour and traveling all over the world. But do you think you were a better practicer, if that's the right word, than most? Or, I mean, only because this, this stuff's come up recently a lot on TV, like the Spurs documentary. There's an interesting piece where Mourinho pans Deli Alley for being a brilliant player, but you're not a good trainer. And they laugh it off. And now some months later, you know, the guy's not getting a game. And I think he was trying to drop a point. But do you, um, were you a good trainer or a good practicer then or, 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 you know, when you were younger? Or is that something that's kind of developed? I think, I think where
1: I was probably lucky was I was very good at analysing losses for someone who was probably young and didn't really understand the sport that well anyway. But I could really see where the holes were, and and I guess just the way I am, my personality-wise or whatever, I was very happy to spend a thousand hours getting it right, you know. Yeah. And so yeah, my practice would have been very specific and very efficient, but it would have been based around a problem that that I thought I had, um, and the, you know, the, the frustrating thing, I guess in those days was, you know, you would, and probably true in any sport, let's be honest, but you would, you would plug a hole and go back in at the competitive level with the, with the hole plugged only to find that there was another one right behind it that you, that you'd never seen because you could never get there. And so, you know, I had, I had a good couple of years of, of that kind of situation of, well, you know i think i've i think i've cracked it you know this next match is going to be the one and of course the ball that you were struggling with you're getting back and then you realize that wow they've got another one straight after that 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 stitches me up and so back to the drawing board again and so there was a lot of years of of that type of practice of going okay this is an issue sorted out you know and that's some of them take a long time to patch up
0: sure and but, do you think um, a lot a lot of that comes from your opponents finding a finding a, a weakness or, or an issue or is it just you know learning the game? Well again there's a bit of both I mean the
1: game's so hard you know there are certain things that everybody struggles with and until you get to a certain level you don't realize it's an issue. Yeah. Um, and then there's another side of it which is you know maybe it's a technical issue or you know you can get found out by your opponent. And so some of it's just what the court does to you and definitely some of it's what they can do to you.
0: Yeah, I actually really geek out on this stuff all day, especially in in a game like uh, real tennis, where uh, as a beginner, anyway, when you start playing, there are certain things that you just think, my goodness, how can I ever conquer this? Like you know that any beginner would would struggle, you know, to take a ball off the tamper, for example, and then one day it just you suddenly read it, like, and and then you can take it and you know and stuff like that and. Yeah, there are many, many things in that mysterious game that I still struggle with that I can't believe. But then again, that's because I don't work very hard at it. Um, so if we just look at, a, I've got it on the screen here, around that like early 90s, mid 90s period. You know, there's a lot of tournament wins. You become world champion for the first time in '94. Specifically around that, because if the listeners don't know, the world championship in real in real tennis, sorry, is is on a challenge basis. I guess the closest thing we have to it in other sports maybe is boxing, where the you know the, the incumbent world champion uh, is there, and then others have to earn the right to challenge him or her over a, a fairly grueling period. Um, th- best of thirteen sets, isn't it, Robin? Uh, world Championship, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> which, if any of you have played any sport <laughs> uh, for any length of time, knows a fucking long match. Um, specifically for the for your first world championship was the training there the, the, the sort of determination element um was that different to just the lead up to you know these other tournaments as, as i said you won the french us and australian opens in 93 and then the aussie open again the following year and then that's the world championship year was the training different was your mindset different for that sort of thing well i suppose that, you know
1: the the problem with your first one is it's such a different format and you've basically got no way of knowing what it's like Mm. and therefore kind of no way of really knowing how to prepare for it. And so I, I don't, I don't imagine it was that different. You know, I was clearly kind of riding high in terms of form and I'd had, I'd had wins over the, you know, the the player that I was going to be playing. Um,
0: Who was that? Was that, was that Wayne Davis? Wayne
1: Davis was world champion. And so, you know, like I said, I had, I had beaten him at that point. And, but it, just going into a, a you know, a five-day best of 13 match, you just, you, yeah. how can you possibly know what it's going to be like? And actually, <laughs> as, it, as it turned out, he, he offered a home and away match. And so we had two best of 13 set matches, in, one in Australia and one in, uh, one in the U.S., he was New York, right? So we did Hobart and New York. Wow. And so I think, you know, the, the dynamic would have been quite different if it was just New York. <laughs> but for whatever reason, he offered this home and away match. And so, I, you know, I bit his hand off and said yes. Um, went, back to the, you know, went back to Hobart and raised the money that he wanted. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, that first week in Australia, I got a good lead which Which made my life that bit easier in the u s but yeah, I would say my preparation then was probably compared to these days slightly unprofessional.
0: <laughs> I think we probably all know what that means um, okay, so look for anyone else, the idea of playing a match that involves uh playing thirteen the potentially the thirteen sets in one country traveling across the other side of the planet and playing another thirteen sets. Uh, is pretty bonkers but of course this sport is generally bonkers and it, you know it was all created around these sort of interesting challenges and you know it's interesting you bring up raising the money too because most people won't realise that you know back then especially uh, the the purse or the, or the prize money that is being played for you know quite often the players and those around them would help get that together via sponsorship and benefactors and all the rest of it so um, just another added layer of things to do like there isn't enough to do at the time um, so after you, after you beat Wayne uh, in that then there comes a fairly sort of dominant period from you know from the outside looking in and you mentioned the professionalism thing and, oh, sorry. it's probably just it's Rob's, Rob's agent going nuts that he's knowing trade secrets go on (laughs) on the sporting blog podcast um yeah so back to professions actually i remember one of the first times quite early when we met actually and i think i can't remember when it was probably in the early mid 2000s we were having a beer at the bar actually and we were talking about stuff and i remember you saying to me it's not all guinness and uh, (laughs) and because i guess at the time i sort of had this whimsical idea that you know there's this great social life and just going around winning tournaments or winning money. When did you, and this might, you know, this may or may not be a physical thing or an age thing too, when did you feel you had to make the, if you like, the the switch from uh well or, or just upgrading your professionalism? I mean, did it come as a result of people being, you know, better than the generation before or body giving up or any of those sorts of things? When did you feel that there was a switch? I think,
1: you know, <clears throat> for that kind of late 90s period, I probably coasted a bit and made sure I was always doing enough to, you know, to kind of win the ones I wanted to win. Um, but then, yeah, late 90s, 2000, I had a bit of stiff competition and then um, and also a few back issues, just probably from, you know, from playing too much sport and Without really preparing properly for it, um, you know. And so that combination effectively meant that there there was a period there where I I knew I wasn't the best player in the world, and you know that was just then okay. You know what do you, what do you do about that? And so it was a question of you know just seeking some professional advice and you know and and, and around that time actually the, the kind of tr- training concepts were changing quite kind of radically really this idea of how you got fit for sport was, you know, the, the, the science behind it was, was becoming, you know, quite impressive and it was getting yourself to believe in a lot of it in a way, but the, the training really ramped up from, from that period. And so I've had a good, you know, good 20 years of proper strength and conditioning and, um, you know, really looking after myself, I suppose. And, and also such a hard game to it's you, it's a lot easier to keep your skill level than it is to keep your body going (laughs) just because it's such a brutal kind of, you know, the, the nature of the sports, it's not great for your body. And so that becomes a bit more of a focus almost. And, you know, whereas probably learning to get good and becoming good, you know, you, it's like an 80, 80, 20 split, probably in terms of practice and learning versus fitness compared to now which is probably 60 70 40 the other way where it's much more about making sure you can take the beating first and then hope that your skill levels kind of still there almost
0: yeah that's fascinating there's actually on this website there is a rather lengthy uh, interview with with Howard Angus who uh, for listeners that don't know, was was a world champion back in the seventies of both real tennis and rackets, actually not at the same time, but uh, not too far apart. And um, his his approach, I guess, was ahead of its time in terms of fitness and all of that. But there, there was a nice line in there which goes along the lines of something like, "Felt like every extra hour I put into practice in real tennis, because of the intensity of the game, meant I could out, you know, I could last an extra few minutes in a match." And um, you know, I, I, I think every time I sort of spoke to Howard about training, like, you know, the guy's super analytical anyway, but I don't think his technique really was most of the training. I think it was the relentless nature of, of getting match fit, as it were, um, that became the focus. Um, but on, you know, that switch to professionalism, and this is really the stuff that I'm interested in, how much of that was down to the, determination not to lose your world title rather than you know to get better was there because once you've been top dog for five or six years right you don't want to let it go uh
1: well yeah i mean it was all and i guess in a in a slightly back then the opens were a little less relevant because it wasn't it wasn't always that much kind of money in them um and so, you know, your desire to be at every Open and win every Open was slightly less back then, whereas the World Championship was that kind of, you know, it was the, it was the jewel. And so, you know, all my preparation would be around that. And, and as it became every two years, you know, you, you would have a two-year cycle in your training. Um, you know, so 2004 World Championship, I think my training started... second half of 2002. Wow. And so by the time you get to 2004, you know, you, you, you're ready for the Olympics. <laughs> and, and so you kind of, when you're on court, you're, you know, it, it just gives you a feeling of invincibility you know, you just, you're thinking, oh, I'm so strong. I'm so fit. I've worked on everything. Um, it's going to take a miracle to beat me, you know, and, that, and that's not true. But mentally, that's where you are.
0: Yeah, and um, I love that because I think uh, there's a lot of people, whether it's playing a sport or even just having goals at gym or running, whatever it is, that kind of long, long-term goal helps you kind of get there every day and start piecing things together. And, you know, there's a lot of people that play amateur sport who need those kind of long-term goals, whether it's six months from now, we've got a cup final or I want to be able to run 20k by next year, but you feel like you're building towards something. So it's nice to know that the pros do it well. Now, 2004, actually, I remember watching this, uh, online that was at the oratory, right? Or was that 2006? question 2004 was definitely newport rhode island that's right sorry yeah newport rhode island and 2006 is at the oratory where you are now The head pro will come on to that actually in a minute um just on that so 2004 newport what was it like just for those listening like getting slightly off topic but what was it like for you as someone from hobart getting to go to all these you know fairly cool places new york not chicago then but um philadelphia rhode island paris london i mean it sounds terribly terribly exciting i mean um was was it that in actuality or by this point 2004 is it all about the grind
1: yeah i mean by 2004 i'd been doing that you know already 14 years and so i mean it's still amazing that that was your life yeah but yeah the fun of you know being in paris for the first few times or you know like you say somewhere as amazing as the the Racket club in New York or Philly or even Boston, you just you know those first few visits are like wow i'm I'm in a completely different world here <laughs> like what what's going on um yeah but I, yeah, I guess it's sad in a way, but you kind of become so used to it you know you that you know when you go to a, a normal club you' kind of like, well, okay, it's still great because we're playing tennis here, but <clears throat> You know, where's the where's the six hundred foot by uh, six hundred foot steam room? Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> you know the changing the changing room is not very good. I, <laughs> I I know that I know that well, one well. Yeah,
1: yeah. There's no question that you know I could not have imagined the life I ended up with. Um, you know, back in the late '80s, it just you know I was I was tracking you know a normal young guy's life in in Hobart, Tasmania, and um, you know just you know they could have picked one of the other boys to do that job, and that would have been it. And just just a little bit of fate there. Just I got a random part time job and uh, changed my life quite drastically.
0: Yeah, and it's actually really awesome. But there, I think you know you're not you're not terribly uh, outgoing with with your own abilities. And there must have been you know the the desire to to once you got you know through that early period, but the desire then to be. One of, if not the best, and then of course the dedication that you have to, uh, to um, the dedication you need uh, to remain on top. So one of the great things about your career, of course, not just been the sheer number of of titles you've won and all the rest of it, but the longevity of it all. Um, you know, apart from that one gap in 2016. Of a year and a bit, or a year and a, two years. Sorry, you've you've been a world champion of this game and currently are for a long fucking time since nineteen ninety four and it's now twenty twenty. You know, uh, mind boggles, um, but th- there's a serious amount of dedication in there to the sport because, of course, you know one could could retire from you know match play and. Uh, have a very nice life as a club pro or as a touring club pro, whatever. What, you know, is there something you could put your finger on as to why you stayed motivated and the determination's been there to stay, you know, at, as close to the top of this game as as can be? Yeah, just I think ultimately it comes down to the fact that, we're,
1: you know, we're quite lucky in that we're not competing week in, week out because I could definitely see 26 years later, that would be a bit tiresome. <laughs> and so you, you, the game almost keeps you on competitive edge because you know, you, you're going a couple of months at a time, some of the year, without competing. And so you, you do still love competing because you're not doing it day in, day out. Mm. Um, and I think you know I was realistic in that... You think, well, I can't be up all the time, and so you just you pick and choose. And I think the other thing I I probably did very well through my career was, if somebody was doing something better than me, I wasn't too proud to kind of go, actually, you're genuinely better at that than I am. I'm going to do it how you do it. Um, You know, and just even after being world champion for, for I don't know, randomly call it, you know. 15 years or whatever, I was happy to go back to the drawing board to sort something out based on the fact that I'd seen someone do it better. You know, and so there's lots of little things that I've, I've built into the way I look at it. But again, it was like, it was that two year kind of rolling goal for me always, it was like you could basically, if you wanted to go and live on a beach for a year, you could, because yeah. you know you wanted to be back in peak condition for that second year. Um, and I think that made it kind of easy. Like you could you could get on with your life, whatever you decided to do. Um, and and then refocus. You know, as long as you had your fitness levels, you could just you could switch back on. You know, eight eight ten months out to to get ready for another you know world championship battle. And there's lots of instances where I was losing. You know, prior to that match and then would come out and win that match
0: yeah and so let's let's just look at the the most recent world championship on that basis so that was in 2018 where you were the challenger in a, t- in a different position to uh the previous 12 or whatever times you'd uh defended your title so you were challenging Vier from the states who had beaten you in the last one and now had you played a lot of other tournaments that year, 2018, or did you consciously, you know, decide not to play lots bearing in mind, you were building up for what was going to be a pretty tough, well, extremely tough challenge. I don't remember as part of that answer. Um,
1: well, the world championship would have been April, May. And so I think I probably went to Australia in January. Um, and then from there on I would have been busy with the elimination matches yeah so I was I had an elimination match at queens and then another one in chicago so that would have taken up most of that gap between january and, and the and the title
0: match yeah so for those listening who don't know the elimination games are essentially the you know the pathway to get to to challenge the world champion so there are plenty of other people that Think they are good enough to beat the world champion but they got to beat each other first and eventually it comes down to one and then that person gets to the, the privilege of playing the best of 13 matches now i mean the reason i bring this one up and you know we're talking about determination desire and dedication this was 2018 uh your opponents uh a good decade younger than you where we're at queens the sort of uk and somewhat spiritual home of tennis You've been made a life member there a few years before. So sort of playing on home court-ish, you know, big support there for you. Um, and I think you win the first set and then, and that was, a, it was close. I think it was six, five or six, four. And then I think you lose the next three. So you're starting day two, three, one down. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Correct. yeah. So, so he's 20 years younger than me. Just to right, correct. 20 <laughs>
0: Well, yeah. So I I think from the outside looking in, obviously Cam had picked up the World Championship um, the time before and was on a roll. And when he went 3-1 up, I think a few of us were thinking, wow, okay, this is a long way back. Um, Yet I think probably the most extraordinary comeback, well, certainly in that game's history, if not many other sports history. We talk about desire, determination, dedication on you know, at the, the end of that first day, I mean, of course you always think you're in with a chance because you are because uh, you are who you are, but did you have any doubts at all or were you, you know, just determined to get back out next time and try and get, you know, back level Peggy? Well, I think, um, I mean, even prior to that first day, um,
1: I was extremely worried about getting any sets and, you know, I'm slightly, I suppose, as I've got a bit older, I, I get slightly concerned about not being able to put on a, a kind of a show for spectators because <laughs> it's quite easy to get steamrolled when you're 50. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, the biggest change for me in this match was that I had zero pressure on me. You know, for the first time ever, everyone was just happy to see me there. No expectation of me winning whatsoever. And, I, and, and not even from me was there that expectation. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to be as competitive as I could be um, and kind of, you know, pretty much bow out with everyone going, like, what a, what a great performance, you know, well done. And so I think to win the first set was almost a shock because <laughs> um, yeah. I don't think, I'm not sure I'd even won the first set in any other match when I was supposed to win. <laughs> the one that I thought was an issue. Uh, but, and again, I, I think even though I went down 3-1, I, it was an interesting... I went up to have some food after that day and just the buzz in the crowd was amazing. And people were saying, like, you know, you've, you've got this. You know, you were so close to 2 all, Could have even been 3-1. And I kind of was thinking, like, I don't know what match they were watching, but... You
0: know,
1: <laughs> did not feel like that to me. Um, yeah. And then, but it did give me a lift you know, and I thought, well, maybe, you know, they were watching after all. So when I watched it back, um, you know, I was like, well, actually I'm not actually doing that badly here. And
0: oh, so you did, you did watch the, you watched those sets back that evening, did you?
1: Um, probably, the probably the following day. And just, you know, and I, I had a practice that day as well. And I was like, well, you know, I'm just going to try this a bit, um, you know, go back to a few of the old, the old school favourites. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then it was just one of those weird days in sport where the crowd kind of got things going for me in a way. And I just kind of jumped on this crowd wave and <laughs> rode it to the end of the day, really. It was, just, it was a brilliant day. Best day of my career.
0: Oh, that's cool. And I, and I remember too, because uh, I was in and out of the club that that, that that whole week actually and uh, we had the tv upstairs and you know sneaked into the gallery here or there and yeah it really was one of those things where it's like we, we, on our whatsapp group like our Rackers whatsapp group someone has said he's not actually gonna fucking do this <laughs> he's like, this will be like the mother of all piss-ups of course that's our priority all the time it's like <laughs> how's the party gonna be if this wins so um Just talk just briefly because, you know, everyone's always bangs on about this stuff. But, you know, physically, after four sets of tennis, most people are going to be a bit sore the next day. Uh, The amount of punishment you put your body through. Actually, one thing I just wanted to mention just on that, your body shape also changed quite a lot, right? So I remember there was a period where you got pretty big. Um, I guess that would have been the sort of mm, 2010, 2012, 14 stage. I don't know. And obviously carrying a lot more muscle, but that has its own perils when you're playing a game like tennis. You'd lean down for this one quite a bit. Um, Did that help in your recovery at all, or in the? Uh, I think that kind of.
1: I mean, it almost certainly does, yeah. But you know, the it's the strength and conditioning stuff that really helps. You know, if you're, if you're incredibly strong and i certainly obviously not, wasn't at my strongest in 2018 by any means. Um, but when you've done what I've done for so long, you know, that, that strength stuff stays with you for quite a long time. So, you know, I do do that side of training very well. So I don't, I don't often pull up sore if I'm honest, Hmm. you know, I'd be, I'd be a lot sore from training than I would be these days from tennis, where early in my career, you know, after tough tennis games, I'd be crippled. Um, so it's nice to kind of turn that on its head. You know, when you get your training right, your, your output in training is you don't want that happening on a tennis court. You don't, need, you don't want to have the bucket next to the side of the court.
0: You know? No, right. <laughs> okay, so you picked So unbelievable comeback in that match, uh, ended up winning. So you are, as, we, as things stand, the current world champion. I guess there's going to be no challenge this year because of corona that we know. Um, uh, to the best of your knowledge, does that mean that that kicks into to next year sometime but no one really knows? which um, uh, well,
1: it's, it's scheduled for third week in May. Right. Um, but that is the, that is the last opportunity to play that because it, it still is in effect that, you know, the 2020 yeah. world championship. And, and the problem we have is of course that there, we, there's a 2022 world championship scheduled. And so at some point you've got to go, okay, we need to switch our focus here to 2022. So we've got fingers crossed uh, that may will happen. Um, you know, but there's a lot of things. We want it to be a proper world championship event. You know, I don't think anybody personally, I'd, I'd rather not have it than have like a streamed only kind of thing with no people. It's, it's not what the world championship is. Um, You know, sometimes to protect something, you, you're better off to kind of shelve it and wait until you can do it properly. I think, but, but that, isn't my decision and so we'll see where it goes but fingers crossed uh you know we've got a, a, a brief winter better than everyone expects vaccines coming at our ears um and we can all get together in may and put on another show
0: yeah i hope so too and I, I do agree with you i think sometimes uh it's better to put a line through something you know it's not going to be right um and you know, let's be honest the sport also needs it it needs uh it, uh, there's not millions of uh, pounds of media income coming from the TV side of it, so you need the crowd, you need the bar spend, and all of that other stuff to make these events happen. Um, well, we'll start to wind things down so that you can get back uh, on court. Um, but just you know, where you are now, so you've recently taken up the position of, of head, uh, real tennis pro at the oratory school. Your wife, Claire, has uh taken on the, the role of the head of racket sports. Um, so since that time in Hobart in 94, you've, you've picked up an MBE, you've picked up the medal of the Order of Australia. Coolest for me, you've got your portrait in the long room at Laws. I think that's, again, that's the ace, And you've got your name on lots of boards, uh, at, at clubs around the world. Um, I guess it's probably, you don't often just sit back and think about all that stuff. Um, but, you know, now you're settled, uh, you've got a couple of young kids, you're know, living in the school environment, you're with. Kids. do you ever sit back and think, yeah, right, I'm, I'm, I'm not done, but I'm still very happy where I'm at, I'm content, or is there still something inside you that wants to play competitive games and, and remain at the top for as long as you can?
1: Uh, well, I think I made that decision quite a long time ago, to be honest. I'm, I love competing, but it's no longer all about winning. Um, you know, on some levels i have I've not been a very competitive person. Like if I get on the golf course, I I literally don't care who wins. If I play Monopoly, I don't care who wins. Um and so I'm I'm very comfortable with not being the best player in the world. But that's not to say I wouldn't enjoy um a nice tight quarter final match at the British Open on a on a random Tuesday evening um, you know, before before gathering at the bar and having a beer with a few mates. So I think I'd like to think that I can stay fit enough to keep doing that for a few more years. But the real answer to that is like, you know, I'm, I'm very happy where we are now. And the plan really was the world championship was supposed to happen last April. And so then, you know, that, that would have been out of the way and it was the move here was kind of that next step. Um, yeah. It's just kind of um, you know the circumstances have meant that i've I've still got a world championship in front of me, uh, even though I'm kind of in my current role. Um, so it's just uh, this this is an exciting opportunity. you know we've We've come to a club that has seen kind of better days in terms of numbers of people playing and and certainly, you know when you think about it, it wasn't you know fourteen years ago it was hosting world championships, and it was one you know one of the busiest clubs in the country. So, you know, we've got a great project here to kind of build it back up and get everybody excited about tennis and make sure the school's happy that they've got a tennis court, you know. And it's, so I think I'm well-placed to do a lot of that and you know, a bit of support from, from the locals coming back into play. And, and there's already some good, good early signs. So, you know, the tennis is always going to be a part of my life because I just, you know, I love it. But, um, you know, this is definitely my new focus, I guess.
0: Great, and I look forward to coming and having a hit on the uh, court. It's actually probably uh, almost the closest court to me now, I think. Um, so once you're, uh, once you're fully settled in and there's a few spare hours, I'll come and uh, we can work on the many holes that are in my game. Um, Rob, thanks a lot. Look, I'm, it's very kind of you to take time out of your day. Uh, we haven't seen each other for ages because of COVID and all the usual social stuff not happening, but... Maybe before the end of the year, um, we'll catch up for a beer or whatever. So it's, uh, it was great to see you. And um, thanks for making the time. I look forward to it. And uh, you're very welcome. Take care. Right, see you later.